TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Through conversations with investors and entrepreneurs, Unseen Upside by Cambridge Associates explores the human impact of investing. Season four focuses on exciting healthcare advancements, promising to improve outcomes and create resilient, patient-centric systems, blending technology and compassion. Meet the minds behind innovation shaping the future of medicine, from drug discovery to the role of AI. Uncover the Unseen Upside, available now. Hey everyone, it's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore new thoughts and new ways of thinking. My guest today is Justin Gregg, an expert on animal cognition and behavior and a star science writer. He did his doctorate on dolphin social intelligence and asked delightfully big and bold questions about whether we're really smarter than animals. Justin teaches a course on animal minds, voices characters in animated movies, and hosts The Dolphin Pod. I loved his book, If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal, What Animal Intelligence Reveals About Human Stupidity. Let me start by asking, how did you get interested in studying animals? I was always interested in animals uh, my whole life. My mom worked for the Humane Society, as did my grandmother, and so we always had animals in our lives. But when I went to university, I ended up studying linguistics. I wasn't that good at science. Uh, Like, I wasn't good at math. I had a hard time in biology. And so I had this career path that went in a completely non-animal direction until I had an epiphany at some point in my my mid to late 20s. And I'm like, no, I want to dedicate my life to animals. And so I went back to figure out how I could turn a linguistics degree into working with animals every day. And how did you land at dolphins then? I'd always been into marine mammals. Like I loved whales. I went whale watching as a kid. Whales and dolphins were always part of my life. And then when I was trying to turn that linguistics degree into animal research, the obvious avenue is to study how animals communicate. And there had been a lot of work done with dolphins and human language, like learning symbol systems. And so that's where it started. I, it was either dolphins or you know one of the great ape species or maybe a, a corvid, but I chose dolphins. Well, I, I've been envious of dolphins for a long time in two ways. One is, as a former diver, I always wanted to be able to to do the flips as smoothly and effortlessly as they did. Um, but also, I love the fact, and you can correct me if I've misread this, but I, I learned a long time ago that dolphins can actually sleep with one half of their brain and keep the other half awake. Is this true? Yeah, that's right. A dolphin needs to be awake to take a breath. Uh, because the blowhole is closed, and then it, when it's sleeping, it otherwise wouldn't breathe. So it can't be fully asleep, or it wouldn't be able to take a breath, because it has to swim up to the surface. So the solution is to only sleep one half of the brain at a time, so that it can always be slowly swimming and always going up for a breath. 
And so it sort of will shut off some of its brain for a few hours and then the other half for another few hours. And it gets, you know, about eight hours of sleep altogether. How do I get this ability? I don't know. I mean, you can try cutting the corpus callosum, see what happens, but I would recommend (laughs) against trying that. The subtitle of your book, it's What Animal Intelligence Reveals About Human Stupidity. What do we underestimate about animal intelligence? I think what we assume for humans is we have a level of complexity that animals don't have, which is true. And we also uh, assume that that is good. Uh, Good in an evolutionary sense or just good in a value-ridden sense, which would mean that animals aren't as good when it comes to thinking. Uh, But if you look at the history of animals and everything that has happened, including our own evolutionary history, intelligence in the way that humans possess it doesn't exist and doesn't matter and usually isn't particularly successful. So many animals are successful without thinking the way that we think. So if you really think about the history of animal life, you realize that intelligence hasn't been rewarded particularly very often. And as I argue in the book, might actually be very bad for us as a species. When you talk about animals being successful, what do you mean? Are you thinking about evolutionary success? Are you thinking about achieving their goals, finding contentment? I literally struggled with that in the book because I don't have the answers in that section where I'm talking with my friend Brendan about what is winning in an evolutionary sense. I didn't have a good answer. Like I had to figure it out. So there's a few ways to define it, like you point out. An animal species that has been around for the longest in its current form, you might say that that's, it's winning, it didn't have to change, but I don't know, that doesn't seem to really make sense. Or just the fact that there's a lot of them, I don't know if that's a good way to do it. Like there are a lot of bacteria, I don't know if that means that they're winning. So what I came down on, and the only way I can sort of get the, the philosophical, ethical side with the biological side, is, is to talk about pleasure. An animal that goes about its daily life with the least amount of of unhappiness and the most amount of pleasure, I think they would be winning at life. (laughs) Well, that's a pretty narrow way to define human success, right? We're much more than pleasure-seeking or misery-avoiding or or pain-minimizing creatures, right? We also seek meaning. We seek growth. We want to lead rich lives. Do we have any ways of gauging, like, do animals experience meaning and purpose, for example? That's always so hard because without language, it's difficult to know what's going on when your cat is looking out the window, whether or not they have experience, you know, an epiphany and think about the eternal soul and beauty. It's hard to know. We know humans do do it. But that's one of the things I question in the book, because it's a good argument to say that like finding meaning in life is inherently good. But I'm not even so sure that that's necessarily true. (laughs) Because the problem with that, as I point out in the book, When you know about your own mortality, it brings with it a lot of misery. And that can lead to things like depression and and anxiety and suicide in some cases. So it's not always good to think too hard about things. And then, of course, what I argue in the book is like all those amazing cognitive skills that allow us to find this meaning are also the cognitive skills that are very quickly hurtling us toward extinction, potentially. So they may not be good for us in the long term. If you take a very long view, you can also argue that without knowledge of mortality, it's hard to find meaning and purpose. And you could make the case, too, that there are many forces that could cause our extinction that require intelligence to prevent or solve our destruction, right? It seems like intelligence, from your point of view, is a double-edged sword. You're right. Of course, the argument is 
our intelligence might have gotten us into this problem, but it also is the solution. Like we can fix our problems. And so then you sort of have to say, well, but are we going to? Because <laughs> if there's one thing humans seem to be very poor at, it's uniting in a global way to fix existential threats. I don't think we're good at that. But that just comes down to if I've had a glass of wine, I might feel a little happier about our prospects than if I haven't or what, you know? So there's no answer to that. After I read your book the first time, I thought if I had to to summarize your worldview, it would be that for the dinosaurs, ignorance was bliss, but then it also made it impossible to escape a mass extinction. Ignorance is bliss, I guess, is sort of the take-home uh, message of the book. And of course, eventually the sun will engulf the earth and we'll all be dead anyway. So it's all just a matter of the scale of the length. Dinosaurs were around for a very long time. Humans, you know, we've only been in our current form for maybe a couple hundred thousand years. For such a dominant species, we're in danger of like snuffing out very quickly, which I think is the irony of our intelligence. Well, I have every intention of us figuring out how to outlast the sun. But that is a conversation for another day. So yes, there's, a lot of people agree with that. <laughs> in the meantime, how do you actually think about what animal intelligence is? Like when In psychology, when we study human intelligence, we think about it as the capacity to reason and learn. Is it the same in animals, or do you have different ways of, of conceptualizing and measuring it? There are some things that are sort of the same between different disciplines, whether or not it's AI or, or animal cognition. Usually the things that, when we're talking about humans, that apply to human kinds of intelligence and tests, psychometric tests for human intelligence, don't apply to animals because they literally can't be given as a test because they're often linguistic-based. So with animals, you will have similar sort of things, like are they good at problem solving and how are they good at using a paucity of information to create a solution to a problem? That's usually one of the forms of intelligence. But those are just sort of vague. There's no term that everyone studying animal cognition would use for intelligence, which is why you usually don't hear animal cognition scientists talking about intelligence. They usually talk about cognition, specific ways of thinking that an animal does. Got it. Okay, so let's dive into animal cognition then. One of the questions you grapple with in the book is consciousness. I've actually started wondering about this a lot in the last couple of years. I never had pets growing up, did not interact with animals much, and now we have two cats. Mm. And I'm constantly wondering what's going on in there and are they self-aware? Uh, so what does the science tell us? The science is great because it's filled with scientists who fundamentally disagree on that question. I think we're moving toward an era where we're accepting that consciousness, if you, if you define it as just having some sort of experience, any sort of experience in your mind at all, pretty universal, in that you might have insects. Like Lars Chitka, he wrote a fantastic book that's just out on, on insects, and he argues that they have consciousness as well. So consciousness can be something very, very boringly basic, just an, an, the experience of the world, whatever that might mean, qualia, as a philosopher would say. But then you have things like self-awareness, which is different, because you can be consciously aware of yourself in different forms, because you can be consciously aware that you have a body, and then that body is separate from the world. That's a very basic form. But then you have this metacognitive consciousness, which is you're aware of your own thinking, and you're aware of the knowledge that you have and that you don't have. And that's a more complex form. So then the question is, which of these things do animals have and not have? Like, what does your cat have? Do they have metacognition? Do they have body self-awareness? Temporal self-awareness about themselves, projecting themselves in the future, episodic foresight, that kind of thing. Those can be empirical questions. You can get some answers on that. And 
it all again depends on the scientist's interpretation. Some people would say well, what that do you, yes. What do you think, though, as as someone who spends a lot of time synthesizing science? I would say that the consciousness itself is pretty universal, the most basic form, just awareness. Things like episodic foresight, theory of mind. I'm actually more conservative in thinking that maybe they are unique to the human species. Other people would say, no, we definitely know for sure chimpanzees have theory of mind that's the same as humans. But in general, compared to your average animal cognition scientist, I'm probably attributing more abilities to animals than less. Because if there's one thing we know through the history of animal cognition studies, is everything we were sure animals couldn't do, it turns out that they can. And that just keeps progressing every year. What are some examples? Even more basic things like counting, like the ability to understand concepts of one or two or even zero, those seem like human-style concepts that are complicated, but but we know even insects, bees, as they're flying over landmarks, can count the number of landmarks they've passed to, to judge distance and where they are. So things like that are mind-blowing, I, I guess, in a sense, but actually quite common. But we wouldn't have thought that 40 years ago. That's so interesting. Psychologists have been studying number systems across cultures. And turns out a lot of languages only go up to four. Yeah. And then five plus is just a lot, right? Yes. And so by that standard, animals are geniuses, right? It's always interesting because that is how most animals' numerical systems would be. Like they're pretty good around two, three, four, five. And after that, it's just a lot versus not a lot, less or more. Um, So that's weird. (laughs) But that seems to be, I guess, a (laughs) universal in brains, you know? Yeah, that's such an unusual idea. When I think about consciousness, you talk about metacognition and self-awareness. I also think about having goals as a key element of consciousness, right? I have a target for action that I want to achieve, and I can judge success or failure by that. And that's really different from a basic drive that you see in animals, right? Like, I wouldn't say that an animal going to eat because it's hungry has a goal, right? It just has a drive, and it wants to reduce the pain of, you know, of feeling hungry, But I do feel like there's a case to be made that particularly primates have goals. They're excited when they achieve them. They're disappointed when they fall short of them. How how far does that go across animal species? I guess you could ascribe uh, getting food as having a goal in the sense that there's just a, a basic drive to want something. And the question is, to what extent is that goal present in a conscious way? Are they aware of the goal? They're thinking about it, and then they're thinking about solutions to it. That might be less common. But yes, when you're looking at like a, you do an experiment, a problem solving experiment where like one of those displacement ones, like you have a piece of food in a, in a bottle and the only way to get that food out is to add water to the bottle so the food rises up and you see a crow or a chimpanzee solve that problem, they must have the goal consciously in their mind of getting the food and then goals about how to use one item to interact with another item so they can use tools. Like, they must be representing these concepts, these goal-based concepts in their minds. There's no other explanation, because if you've already ruled out trial and error through the experiment, it has to be goal-directed behavior. Psychologists have studied pigeons for a long time, and I I can't even fathom what pigeons are able to do, right? Being able to find directions to a place that is extraordinarily far without a map, I think that's incredible. And then I just read that pigeons can be trained to recognize cancer in x-rays at a something like 99% accuracy rate. But I don't think of a pigeon as smart. So tell me, like, how do you explain what pigeons can do? Correct me on what pigeons can actually do. And like, what does that mean about intelligence? 
You can train a pigeon just through learned associations to recognize the difference because they have great visual acuity between cancerous and non-cancerous tissue. They will be better than a trained radiologist one-on-one, head-to-head. But that has nothing to do with complex cognition in one way, because what it shows you is the absolute power and beauty of learned associations, which is how most animals learn things and deal with the world. So the pigeon isn't representing a goal of spotting cancerous tissue in its mind. Not at all. It's not thinking very hard about what it's doing at all. It's just making very basic learned associations through its sensory system, which is better than humans in this domain, and producing a behavior which is very helpful and functional. But it isn't intelligent in that sense because it's not like we're talking about goal-directed. So it shows the power of basic learning and learned associations in the animal kingdom, which is why the animal, animal kingdom doesn't need all that extra intelligence because it's so powerful with basic learning. So in that sense, then, a pigeon's learning is actually much less like a human than it is, say, computer vision. Yeah, I guess that in that sense, yes, the, a pigeon is almost more like an AI system <laughs> that you're they're training than a human. Yeah, I, I was just thinking like, when I think about machine learning, right? The machine doesn't know cancer versus non-cancer either, right? It just knows how to spot the visual differences between the two. That's a great example, which is why we now use AIs to do so many things that it's better than humans. It's, you know, it's very specific what we're tasking them to do, but machine learning can accomplish things faster and more effectively. Like if you had to design a chess champion, it's going to be a machine, not a human, because they're, they're better at that than humans. No human can ever beat a machine in chess. It's over. They have won. Um, which shows you that that kind of learning, non-human thinking, non-human learning is itself very powerful. That's why we're very careful then about saying this is a specific form of artificial intelligence. It's not general intelligence. Of course, that's the difference. And there's such a great debate as to whether or not general intelligence is even something we could create or design. I'm a little pessimistic, frankly, about that. I I am too, although I think it might be optimistic to be pessimistic about that. (laughs) It's true. I'd rather not invent a a super intelligent uh, singularity style AI system. I think it would be bad. I'm on board with keeping them in single domain. I am too. I I worry a lot about unintended consequences. And I don't know that we're smart enough to manage that. And I'm not confident that uh, artificial general intelligence would be either to our liking. I mean, I love all this, the science fiction stories, but some of these are legitimate concerns. Like, that, what was the, the paperclip replicator one? Like, if you give even a boring machine a simple task, <laughs> it can still destroy the planet to solve it, you know? <laughs> yeah, that would be bad. I want to get to a lightning round. If you had to say, what is the smartest animal? Bedbugs. <laughs> what? Why? <laughs> because they are the one animal we cannot defeat. We, with all of our intelligence, cannot eradicate them. They have very simple behaviors, and yet it's so effective. When they get in your house, you almost can't get rid of them, no matter how smart you are. Wow. Okay, I have to do a follow-up, which is, if, if you were going to take the stricter definition of intelligence that, that you offered around problem-solving, what animal species do you think is the, the smartest problem-solver? Humans, followed by uh, corvids, maybe crows and ravens. Hmm. More so than dolphins or chimps. Uh, well, chimps are pretty good too. <laughs> but I think in their everyday life, crows and ravens are just out in the world. You know, they're cosmopolitan species. They're everywhere. They are solving problems every day. The dolphins are good too, but usually what we see them, their smartest stuff is in a lab. Out in the natural world, they're doing great work, but more examples of smartness come from everyday crows. Hmm. What's the animal whose intelligence we underestimate the most? 
Is there an animal that's stereotyped as dumb that's actually quite smart? I'm going to say raccoons, actually. Because there's a scientist I had interviewed for this book, but I didn't include her in there, studying raccoon intelligence. And that's the number one problem is like people don't think about raccoons at all. Like we know they're kind of smart, but actually they might be very, very smart because like ravens and crows, they're out in the world trying to make their way. They're omnivores. They live next to humans. They're probably wicked smart and we don't think of them that way. We don't test them Hmm. because they're vermin that live next to us. I see a, a future animated film starring your voice with a raccoon as the central character. Please, cast me. <laughs> you are a voice actor. You've played a lot of characters in animated movies. What have you learned from that? Well, what's nice about when you're acting, it's another one of these things where you have to get rid of yourself and inhabit the mind of someone else. And that is another amazing human trait, to be able to act and think like another person. When you have to do that as an actor, it also is one of those things that gets rid of your ego because you're not you anymore. And so I think it's helpful. Acting is helpful in that sense. If there's a surefire way to wake up feeling fresh after a night of enjoying alcohol, it's with Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/slash rethinking to get 15% off your first order when you use rethinking at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash rethinking and use the code rethinking at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors and the problems they bring, like employees missing bills because of shorted paychecks, managers taking the heat from angry employees about those shorted paychecks, HR and payroll teams clocking late hours to correct timesheets, expense mistakes, missing overtime, and sick days? All of that is so unnecessary. Pump the brakes on payroll errors for good by putting employees in the driver's seat. With Paycom's Betty, employees do their own payroll. Betty identifies errors and guides employees to fix them before submission right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong, and no one knows when their pay is wrong or right better than employees. So why not let them fix payroll problems before they become problems? When you get payroll precision every time, unnecessary payroll hassles become, well, unnecessary. Manage the process to make payroll right for everyone with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. There's this, this question that people love to ask around the interface of human and animal cognition, which is, what is it that makes us uniquely human? And I have seen so many hypotheses thrown out and then potentially falsified, you know, from language to anticipating the future, to creativity, to culture, to the ability to tell stories and make up fiction. (laughs) What is the one attribute that you think makes us most uniquely human? Our interest in the thoughts of others. I would say that's it. Because that leads to all the rest. Huh. Hmm. Because like... Fascinating. Yeah, like uh, my cat interacts with me every day, but probably doesn't care what I think or believe. 
it can get everything it needs just by watching my behavior and predicting what's next. But humans don't do that. We're, I want to know what you think. I want to, because that helps me interact with you. That's where everything else springs from in our culture and in our, in our intelligence. You're reminding me of a Judd Apatow stand-up bit that I saw that cracked me up not long ago. He said something like, can you imagine going to the 1970s and telling people, I'm going to take a bunch of Polaroids of myself and then mail them out to my friends because I want to gather their opinions on them. <laughs> exactly. We're the only species that does that. Yeah. Right? It's weird. But it is, a, it is at the root of our uh, kind of social cognition, which leads to our social intelligence. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges to my thinking in your book, maybe the biggest, was you make the case that asking why is overrated. <laughs> why? Why do you believe this? Well, it is, of course, the basis of science. Uh, but I was, we're talking about before with pigeons, like learned associations are so powerful. And that's the sort of competing way of thinking. And why is great. Uh, it leads to our technology and our science, but it leads to all the things that are dangerous, like the threat of nuclear war. That's us solving the you know uh, problems in physics and chemistry. It's that double-edged sword thing. Like every time we do something good with a why question, we also do something potentially terrible. And it, it's so stupid for me to argue this, but because I love science, but I'm like, oh, it'd be great if we didn't do it, <laughs> which seems absurd, obviously. But but, but it is dangerous. This speaks to something that's always bothered me, that I think sometimes science would be better off if we focused on asking how questions than why questions. Hmm. And sometimes humans would be better off, too. When I think about the research on the illusion of, of explanatory depth, for example, the idea that people are overconfident in their understanding of things, and one of the ways that you can break through that overconfidence is not to ask them why they believe what they believe, because then they just double down on their convictions, but to ask them, well, how do you know? Or how does that work? And all of a sudden, they, they see the gaps in their knowledge in, in some cases. Mm. I wonder if why questions are, are sometimes counterproductive. That's a brilliant juxtaposition. A, a how versus a why question is great. So many of the things that we convince ourselves are true, which are dangerously wrong, are because we've asked why, but we don't question how we arrived at the why. Because <laughs> a lot of engineering or medicine, that's all a how question. It's me mechanistic almost. Yes, there are certain kinds of why questions that are just unanswerable with science. Mm -hmm. I remember studying chemistry in high school and asking, why is water made of H2O? Well, it just is. <laughs> <laughs> why is there water? Why is there anything as opposed to nothing? Why is there life? Why do we have to die? Those sorts of why questions are fundamental to the human condition in philosophy. Yeah, it seems like if you push any why question far enough, they become sort of existential. Yes, that's right. And answers to existential questions <laughs> are rarely comforting. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to abandon why questions altogether. When Brian Little talks in his research about personal projects, he calls them you know, both magnificent obsessions and also trivial pursuits. We all have projects that are goals we want to achieve and actions that we want to take. And when I ask how questions, it's really easy to help people make plans. So you move from a goal to an intention to a habit, you know, you can build that into your day. But it's really difficult to find motivation by asking how questions. But I think the act of asking the why question is useful because it helps you identify how close is my project or my goal to my core values. Okay, now. 
Yes. What do you make of that? Is it useful to ask why questions at all? Or is it better to be like a hermit crab and not ask why questions? And that's a fun question, but that's irrelevant because we already ask why questions. We're humans. It's inescapable. So it's too late. The ship has sailed. I'm going to have to ask why questions. And therefore, within the context of humanity, why questions are all we have. And they are great questions, like you say, because if you're not asking them, you're just existing. We need the why questions in order to function because it's who we are as a species. Wow. Well, you just anticipated my next question. I was going to ask you if you believe that we have to ask why questions. Why do you think why is so central to humans? It's actually a, not an easy question because as I point out in the book, like we, we, we lived alongside chimpanzees who don't usually ask many why questions for hundreds of thousands of years, not really using those why questions to change our lifestyle that much from chimpanzees. So we don't necessarily need them. Nonetheless, it's undeniable that they are part and parcel of the human condition. So why do they exist? They do confer an advantage. We do create fire and make clothing and figure out how the world works because we're curious as to why things happen. So usually most of the time they help us. And that's why natural selection chose it to exist. Of course, as I talk about, like maybe the long-term question consequences are bad, or maybe we will survive the death of the sun and be living in another solar system. Nonetheless, they are helpful. All right, Justin, I've realized now that I'm having weekly podcast conversations that the questioning process is very one-sided. Is there a question do you, that you have for me? Do you ever have self-doubt? Of course. Everybody has self-doubt, don't they? I, well, how, how does it not consume you? Oh, I love the, the Glennon Doyle observation that an emotion is often a package that was delivered to you and you can choose whether you want to receive it and accept it and open it hmm. or you can return it to sender when self-doubts creep up i'm like well like, no reject hmm. like, i'm gonna send that one back i don't want it where i feel them most often is when i i take on a new challenge or i'm in an unfamiliar setting hmm. when i'm getting on a stage and i've got a new audience like, I do not know how this talk is going to come across. I don't know if I'm going to connect with them. They're probably not going to laugh at any of my jokes. And <laughs> like, what, what am I doing here? I think in those moments, what I find really helpful is, is to ask, actually, this is, this is a why question. Like, why did I accept this invitation? Why did I take on this challenge? And there's usually some goal or value that matters deeply to me. Mm -hmm. that, that's great. That makes sense. So it, it, it doesn't stop you. It's there. You acknowledge it. You move on. So something else that I associate with intelligence is morality. Maybe this is an axiom that it's possible to be intelligent and immoral and also possible to be intelligent and amoral. But it is very difficult to be moral without intelligence. We need higher level reasoning capabilities to make ethical decisions. And this is part of the, the psychology of moral development, right? It's really hard for a two-year-old to make moral choices with the same sophistication or the same virtue as an adult could. And so that, that does seem to require intelligence. And yet you suggest perhaps that sometimes our intelligence gets in the way of our morality and that animals might have the edge here too when it comes to things like honesty or integrity. Talk to me about that a little bit. In the book, I say morality is what happens when you take the normative systems, which you find in all animals, and then you codify them and you can have rational decisions about them. But those normative systems, because we always think of animals as not having morality of any kind, and some people would even say that they do have morality, but really what they have is norms, which is if you watch like my chickens, for example, they have these rules in place as to which chicken gets to eat first. 
Uh, so these are uh, the, the hierarchy. And that comes out of a, a normative system. So these emotions that are telling them what is the right thing or the wrong thing to do in that moment. And they're just emotion-driven. That's how their normative systems are created. They're not thinking. You know, there's no like chicken hierarchy on the wall of the coop that they're checking off who is number one and who is number five. But humans do exactly that. We can codify things. We can write them down. We can think about them. We can rationalize ourselves into why this is right and this is wrong. And that is unique to our species, which is neat because it produces laws and society and religions, which is nice when those things work. But when those things don't work, that's as I point out in the book, we can rationalize and moralize ourselves into a position to justify things like genocide. Most of the terrible genocides committed in our past are based on people who thought that they were morally correct or justified in doing what they're doing. And so in that sense, human morality can be gross compared to chicken normativity. There's a fundamental question that, that you got me thinking about, which is, there are things we can learn from animals about making morality less difficult. You touch on in some of your writing, which is if you are very convinced that you are right and you're steadfast about it and you don't allow your ability to change your mind, to think differently about your moral reasoning, then you are probably on a path to potential danger and destruction. And I think that's the problem with morality is we don't allow things and evidence to change our ideas about our own beliefs. And that is usually destructive. But but I think recognizing that problem would allow us to be less destructive and more like animals whose normative systems are generally not as destructive. So is, is part of what's going on there then that animals don't have the same level of identity or ego, and therefore there's no desire to be right? That's an interesting question. Desire to be right. Yes, I would think the desire to be right would require some level of self-awareness about understanding what your beliefs are, comparing them to the beliefs of others, which requires theory of mind, and then <laughs> deciding yours are superior, superior. And I don't think that they have. So that's probably benefiting them. And, and also, the because they can't talk about their moral systems and write them down, they don't scale as well. So like you can't like have all the chickens of the world decide on what is right and wrong and unite the chickens against the turkeys in the battle, you know. So that's <laughs> help that's good. <laughs> if I'm a bonobo, for example, I can't gain status by taking my ideology and showing that it's superior to yours. And that means I'm not going to be invested in an ideology in the first place. We can't get into their heads to know for sure. Maybe bonobos are sitting there thinking about their personal ideology and thinking that it's better than their friend Jim over here. Uh, but they lack the communicative linguistic skills to explain that, <laughs> which might, again, just be a dumb luck benefit of evolution that they don't have that ability. This is, I think, another challenge for all of us, which is it's really hard to think about thinking without language, right? So you just describe language as a communicative skill, but I also think it's really central to the ability to have cognition in the first place. And so I guess I'd love to hear you explain what does it mean to think without words? I love that question because I don't know where I stand on what thought is. I think it's an amazing area of research. And i I. I was plummeted into this black hole recently while writing this book when I discovered that I had aphantasia, which is the inability to, to visualize anything in my mind. If I close my eyes, I can't picture anything. I can't hear anything. I'm blank. And I've always been that way. And I didn't realize that other people could do that. Because like, if you say that you can 
close your eyes and picture something, that to me sounds like you're hallucinating. That sounds like a, a, a real <laughs> really? bummer for you. And so Wait I feel, a minute. So you, right now, right now, you can't close your eyes and picture my face? Oh, absolutely not. I can't picture anybody's face. I, I don't know what my wife looks like until I'm looking at her. So, wow. And that's normal for me. Like, that's how I grew up. And so, and what, you didn't know that other people could do that? No. Until when? About five years ago. How did you, how did you not know? Well, that's what, isn't that interesting? Because what, every time someone said like, you know, you're in a meditation class and you're like, okay, picture yourself on the beach. I just thought that they meant think about a beach. And to me, that comes across as concepts or language. I'm like, oh, I know wow. a beach has sand. I can just list attributes of a beach. But I'm like, I never thought other humans could actually picture it. So everything to me sounded like a cute metaphor as opposed to <laughs> something real. <laughs> and it's fascinating that I could live my whole life in a world of visualizers and not realize that. And that got me thinking about, well, one of the things we say for animals is, well, they're visual thinkers. You know, Temple Grandin has her whole book on animals being visual thinkers. And I'm like, yeah, but are they? Because everyone <laughs> assumes that visual thinking is normal, but I don't do it and I'm fine. And maybe my cat doesn't think visually, at which point what is thinking? If they don't have language and they don't have visuals, what are they doing? I mean, I assume I think a lot in language, but I'm not even sure that that's the right way to describe what's going through my mind and then language comes out because it doesn't come out as vision. This is, this is so interesting. It relates to something I talked about with Chantal Pratt, the neuroscientist. Yeah. I remember reading her book and, and realizing, wow, I am an extremely verbal thinker. I can visualize, but I rarely do it and I don't think I need it very much. Mm. And you're even further to that extreme than I am because your, your aphasia just eliminates that. But I guess then, where does it land you in terms of when animals do their version of more sophisticated cognition? If we think about primates, for example, without language, what do you think they're doing? I have no answer, but I love this question because let's think about that, like the chimpanzee who's putting water into a tube to get the food out. As a linguistic thinker, we might be able to sit and talk to each other and be like, hey, if you add water to the thing, blah, 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 blah. Or as a visual thinker, you might be able to close your eyes and imagine an image of the food going up. But if you're not doing either of those, what are you doing? Exactly. I would argue, I don't think chimpanzees are visualizing the solution because I wouldn't do it that way. And I think if you shut off your brain and tried to solve a problem without talking to yourself, because again, I don't talk in my head in the same way either, you're doing some other conceptual thing with your brain uh, thinking about the future and the repercussions of your actions and potential scenarios without visualizing them or talking about them. What is that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Most people studying animals would assume they can visualize it. But what if no animal other than humans can visualize things? How do you explain their behavior? Because that is entirely possible. I think the whole world should go back to the, like square one and start over again and think about animal problem solving without visualization and see what kind of answers we get. Well, I think this suggests a topic for your next book. The compliment to, to this book, I think, is a book about animal emotion. Because I can imagine that a lot of what seems like goal-directed behavior in animals is driven by different emotional experiences, which are not reducible to physiological drives, but often influenced by physiological drives. I would love to see a fleshed out Justin Gregg view of the world of animal emotion. All these are unanswered and almost unanswerable questions, which are the best kind. I love that feeling of being shown that you are definitely wrong. 
Like <laughs> the thing I thought well, I was sure about, like there's the evidence just says, no, no, that can't be it. And you have to change your mind. That's, that's like an endorphin rush. <laughs> so, so that's what's fun with asking questions. You're living proof then of, of what I tried to, to capture and think again is the joy of being wrong. I've had a lot of people say, I would love to feel that more often. I don't know how to get to it more often. Do you have any advice? I would say take some improv classes, <laughs> but I tell people that all the time. When I started doing that like eight, nine years ago, you put yourself out there and you have to blank your mind and you make a decision and you try something and it's not good and it's not funny and then you try something else and you just learn all this humility. You, you learn to, to make a fool of yourself and have it be okay, to be wrong and have it be okay and to be fearless. That's useful in any domain, in science or just in your relationships. Just saying yes, trying something new, expecting to fail, and it's okay to be wrong because you're, you don't have an ego in the picture. Given all that you've learned about animal intelligence and, and human stupidity, what's the biggest thing that you've rethought? I, I think a lot of what I write about is convincing myself to think differently about my relationship to animals because I've always respected them. And now what I'm doing is explaining why I'm respecting them and going deeper as to how I should respect them more. It's easy to empathize with especially certain species of animals, right? But respecting them is a completely different level of care. It's true. And I think probably it comes from the science of anim what is the contents of animal minds in terms of consciousness. Whereas before I might have dismissed insects as different, different categorically to mammals when it comes to their level of suffering or whatever. And now I don't because the science has shifted that slightly. I've learned a ton from your work, and one of the, the overwhelming feelings I had when I read the book was, this is somebody I would love to have dinner with, because he just knows so many interesting things and is going to shift my perspective on humans and animals and thinking and everything in between, and you have done that. Thank you, and thanks for this. This has been fantastic. I'm still puzzling about why questions. If the goal is to explain, are we mostly better off asking how? Is asking why actually useful for finding meaning? Or does it run the risk of sending us into an existential tailspin? I'm reminded of some research by Tasha Yurik, who finds that self-awareness comes not from asking why, but asking what. The key question is not why your values matter to you. It's what's important to you. So maybe why questions are overrated. I don't know, I reserve the right to rethink that. Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Asia Simpson, Samaya Adams, Michelle Quint, Ben Ben Chang, Hannah Kingsley Ma, Julia Dickerson, and Whitney Pennington Rogers. This episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. If you could be any animal for a day, what would you pick? Albatross? I want something that can fly for a really long time <laughs> so that I could just look down and be in the sky. That would be great. Hard to argue with that. I think flight feels like, like that's the thing that animals have on us. Yeah. I mean, I mean, worms are neat, but I don't, I'm not that interested in soil, but I am very interested in the sky. 
You ever feel like your laptop just keeps going, but you are completely drained? I think a lot of us don't realize how much pain we live in because of our interactions with computing. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.